We're going to be in the book of Acts, uh, as we have been working through the book of Acts, and we're nearly at the end. Uh, we're at a really a big passage where, uh, to spoil the end, Paul eventually makes it to Rome. And you know that this has been a large portion of Acts is dedicated to this, the sequence of events, uh, the many trials that Paul is going through to get to Rome. But I've titled this morning's sermon, and while you're flipping in your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 27 and a little bit of chapter 28, so the very end of the book of Acts. But I've titled today's sermon, Shipwrecks, Snake Bites, and a Sovereign God. So aside from a slick alliteration and potentially intriguing words that would kind of draw you in, it really is what we see in this passage. We see shipwreck, we see a snake bite, and undergirding it all, we see the absolute control or sovereignty of God. Now, the majority of the narrative, this is a narrative, is really a long story, and it really is a good story. It's very captivating, but the majority of the story is a time at sea. And so when I talk about this time where they're out on the water in a boat, maybe you think of a number of things that come to mind. Maybe you think of uh, great fictional stories like Moby Dick, like The Odyssey. My kids and I just finished uh, going through The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Narnia series. Highly recommend it. You know, maybe you think of recent news. You think of the Suez Canal. You think of the chaos that happened when a ship ran aground, blocked the whole canal, and with it, billions of dollars of world trade. Now, maybe you're on the optimistic side of this conversation. You hear a ship and a sea voyage, and you think, man, I need a cruise. Maybe that's what you think of. Or you think of just, whatever, the resort on water floating around. But what we're going to run into this morning is far from uh, your dream vacation. It's far from a cruise. It's a journey filled with fear, filled with chaos, and filled with trial. But we'll see that Paul, the Apostle Paul, remains confident because he trusts that God is faithful. And so that is what I want us to primarily focus on. We're going to see a story. We're going to see a lot of details, but I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. God is faithful and God is sovereign. Now, we've seen this uh, pattern of God's sovereignty really through the whole Bible. That as we've been working through the book of Acts, we see that God is absolutely in control. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. But this morning, I want to talk about another big word. Uh, that's very closely related to sov- uh, sovereignty, and that is God's providence. You'll see a little bit of a definition here, and you may think, you know, what's the difference? Now, the distinction, I'll admit, is small, uh, but it is significant. Sovereignty is God's right and power to do what he wills. Providence is the purposeful action that God does. So God is sovereign and in control and acts out his will purposefully. This is providence. If you are curious about the distinction or digging into this further, John Piper just released a 700-page book on the subject. And so if you want to dig into that, I recommend it, but it is a slog. But I don't want to get lost in definitions. These are closely linked words, but I thought it was worth us uh, understanding the distinction as we work through this passage and really consider the whole book of Acts here. And so just to clarify it, I got the, uh, Kyle will have the definition on the screen here. Sovereignty, God's right and power to do what he wills, and providence is God's purposeful sovereignty, or maybe God's sovereignty in action. Now, this passage is a, a big one. I've talked about that a few times, and it, I mean, we've hit this number of verses before, but this, I feel like, is a nemesis of mine. It's long and has a ton of names and locations to pronounce, so bear with me. 
But the detail that Luke gives is incredible in this story, in this passage. We see in the first verse that Luke is along for the ride, for lack of a better word. And so he gives a very detailed description. Uh, And actually, one of the most detailed descriptions of any ancient working ship in all of classic literature. And so many, Christians or not, have benefited from Luke's account. Now, is this only a historical document that just helps us know uh, what it was like to be on a boat? in the first century? Well, no. Luke gives us a large amount of ink to this story. And so we can be assured that this accurate account is helpful to us. And it's in the Bible for a reason. We have a lot to learn from it. And so our big idea, I thought about kind of dressing this up in a lot of different ways, but eventually just kind of boiled it down, you know, like sap into syrup, boiled it down to this. The big idea is God is Faithful. We can all remember that. God is faithful. And so, like I said, we've got a lot to get through. I want you to look for that big idea. I want you to look for that pattern throughout uh, every single verse of this passage. God is faithful. And so let's dive in. Yeah, that's a bad pun for a nautical story, but we'll dive in. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, let's go. Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, Julius would prove to be a good guy. He's not a Christian, uh, but he becomes a supporter of Paul. He protects him, actually saves Paul's life later, as we'll see. Uh, There's a few times where he doesn't listen to Paul right away when maybe he should have. But we'll see this Julius guy. He sticks around through the whole story, and he's going to be a big help. Verse 2. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So as I mentioned already, we see Luke, the author of Acts. We see him in verse 1. He says, we should set sail for Italy. So he's along for the ride. And then this other guy, Aristarchus. Now, uh, Aristarchus we see pop up a few times in Paul's letters. And Paul talks about him being a faithful friend, being a fellow missionary. And so we're going to see this undertone, this kind of theme through the whole text, too. I don't think this is the main point, but this is a point. We see this constantly reoccurring thing of the beauty of Christian friendship. We've run into this in Acts before, but I want you to keep your eye out as we read through this passage for these little nuggets of the beauty of Christian friendship, the encouragement, the support that happens. And then we also see the Adramidium, the first of three ships, the first of three ships that uh, Paul will be on throughout this story. And this is a, a small coasting vessel, say, close to, the, close to the shore. Verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So right here, we've already seen now verse 1 and 2 play out. Julius, nice guy, lets Paul go, the beauty of Christian friendship. Verse 4. And putting out at sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now, the lee, I'm not, a, a, again, you're going to see a lot of my nautical ignorance here. But a lee, to sail under the lee was to sail in the shelter of a land. And so the wind is coming, but to be protected from the wind or at least get the wind in the right place, they go in the lee of an island. We're going to see a map in a few minutes. And so you'll be able to see how they kind of zigzag around some islands to be protected by the wind. Verse 5. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. 
There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So this is ship number two. Now this is a larger ship. This is a big, uh, likely grain ship. Now this, nothing compares to the ocean liners we have today, but this is a first century equivalent of an ocean liner. We see later there's close to 300 people on this. So this is a big boat, right? Not like the first one they were on. Now they're on a big boat because now they got across some big water. And so they get on this boat, uh, and this was a, a... Uh, Like I said, likely a grain ship transporting grain from Egypt up to Rome. Verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Now, Kyle's going to throw a map on the screen here. Hopefully, you can see it, depending on what kind of device you're using. Uh, If you flip through your Bible, you might be able to find a map at the back, too, that shows this journey. But we see Paul leave from uh, Caesarea. He goes up to Sidon. We see him work his way up there. He's going in the Lee around Cyprus. They go up to Myra, switch boats, move up, and then they're going around these islands. And so you can kind of track how they're going on this. And now they're going underneath Crete there. You see they end up at this place called Fair Havens. Fair Havens. But we see things start to get a little bit crazy here. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. So the fast here he's talking about is the Day of Atonement. And so he's not talking about this uh, for any real theological significance, but this date would have been near the end of September, beginning of October. And what he's talking about or what he's describing here is a practical consideration. Sailing season was closing, or as Paul was about to argue, is closed. The weather simply gets too bad at that time of year. Now, this reminds me of a time, now we have some people uh, in here that were here to pray earlier, but this reminds me of a time when Mariah and I went on vacation. Remember when you could go on vacation? It was a wonderful thing. But we went on vacation with HGC's very own Alex and Jess. We went to the beautiful Azores Islands in the middle of the Atlantic, a prime place for some of the best whale watching in the world. Now, we knew this when we went, but the bad news was that whale season was closing. Not hunting whales, but whale season for viewing whales was closing. But we found one whale watching boat that would still go out. And if I remember right, but I might be dramatizing, it was the last day. It was the last time he was going to take the boat out. And so we said, let's go. What if we see a blue whale or something? Now, the reason why the season was closing was, one, because most of the whales had moved on, and two, the water was getting too rough. And we learned that this was the case. We saw some dolphins, but we saw no whales. And it wouldn't have mattered anyway because 90% of the boat was below deck throwing up the whole time because the waves were so rocky in this tiny little boat. And so that's what I think of when, when they're saying, all right, the fast is over, man. Season's closing. Man, that's what they're talking about. Now, this is much more serious, as we'll see. It's not a little bit of nausea on a whale-watching boat. We see Paul uh, in the end of verse 9. Let's continue on. Paul, Paul advised to them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So again, we're not worried about a little bit of seasickness here. Or maybe, oh man, we're not going to see the whales. Right? This is serious business. Now, we have to pause here. Paul speaks a few different times, and we need to ask, you know, is Paul prophesying here? Is he being prophetic in what he's saying? Uh, I would say no. How do we know that? Well, he doesn't say that he's being prophetic. He's, he seems like he's just being practical. This guy has 
been, as we've covered through the book of Acts, he spent a lot of time on a boat. And as he writes in later letters, it doesn't even seem like this is the first time he's run into real turmoil on the water and maybe even shipwrecks. And so Paul speaks practically here. Right? He says, man, the season is closing. The season is closed, really. And so then we see, uh, continuing on here, verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they would reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest to spend the winter there. So they're saying, man, Fairhaven's not looking so fair. Let's move on. Let's go to Phoenix. Not Phoenix, Arizona. I know many of you are thinking, hey, I know Phoenix. No, this is a different Phoenix. It's only actually 50 miles away. And so in the scope of this whole thing, you can see if Kyle throws the map up on the screen again, uh, depending how much you squint, Fairhaven's to Phoenix is not a wild journey compared to this whole rest of the trip. And so they say, that's a better place for us to winter. That's a better place for us to uh, harbor there. And so we're going to go to Phoenix, even going against what, what Paul had said. And we see things, they start going well. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. Things are going good. Verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. Tempestuous, what a word. But things were going well until they weren't. And so we can look at that word, maybe translate it to hurricane force. A hurricane force wind comes. And so things are going South, literally and figuratively, in a hurry. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So they're trying to fight this tempestuous wind that comes and hits them, and all of a sudden the storm sends them out to sea. They miss their stop to Phoenix, and they got to dip under, and now, now they're really holding on for dear life. Uh, running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So now they're thinking, now they're going into defense mode, right? They're not driving the boat, the wind's driving the boat. And now they're thinking, what are we going to do? So they pull up the ship's boat, the lifeboat, out of the water, and we see them take a few more measures here. After hoisting it up, at verse 17, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, we lowered the gear. They lowered the gear. And thus, they were driven along. So things go from bad to worse. They say, okay, well, let's try to undergird the ship. Let's try to support the ship so it doesn't break apart. And let's do whatever we can to slow it down. So when they say lower the gear, that could mean uh, putting anchors down. That could mean lowering the mainsail. But they're trying to slow down. Things are getting bad. Verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So again, things go from bad to worse to, probably not worser, things are getting really bad. They begin to jettison or toss the cargo off the ship. Right? They're trying to make this effort. It's not working. After three days, more gear gets tossed. Things are going really south. Verse 20. And this is a really dark turn here. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Right? This tempest or storm was so bad, this hurricane force wind and weather 
was so bad that they were not only losing control of the ship, but they lost all sense of navigation. They didn't have GPS, or they didn't have any way of navigating uh, apart from the sun and the stars, and they couldn't even see those things, so they didn't have the visual cues to navigate. Now, I've been lost before, but I can't even imagine the hopelessness that they would feel being lost like this for days. They were truly hopeless. It says all hope was at last abandoned. That's the context of the storm we're talking about. So sometimes it's fun to be a little cheeky, talk about this shipwreck. But man, this is not a rough day on the water of whale watching. This is a do-whatever-you-can-to-stay-alive type of storm. A storm that would drive out all hope. And so you may know this figurative storm well. You may have faced in your life or are currently facing the storm of your life. But remember the point we're on here. God is faithful through every storm. God is faithful through every storm. The story is not over. God has a plan for Paul's life, and God is faithful to keep his promises. So let's read on. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now, it's kind of fun. Is Paul saying, I told you so? I think a little bit. I, I don't think he's being snarky. I think he's, he's establishing credibility for what he's about to say. But he says, I told you to stay here. You didn't listen to me. Verse 22, now, uh, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God whom I belong and whom I worship. It's a great definition of being a Christian, whom I belong and I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Now, Paul here is now speaking more... uh, beyond his own opinion or sailing experience. He is confident that they will be safe because God has reminded him of the promise that he made to Paul, that Paul will make it to Rome. Now, just to kind of plant the seed of the timelines here, the first time that that was so explicitly told to Paul was two and a half years earlier. But Paul is confident, and God reassures him, appears to him with an angel and says, you will appear before Caesar. The scene feels a lot like uh, another ocean story. Uh, It feels a lot like the story of Jonah. But there's also details that are radically different. Both were stuck in a storm, tossing things off the boat. But in Jonah's case, it was because he was on board that they were facing death in the storm. In this case, though, Paul reassures them it's because he's on board that they will live. Not that Paul himself is the deliverer. He doesn't do any saving but it's because God is faithful through every storm. So here and throughout the passage, really, we see an interesting balance of an idea that we've talked about before, but a balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God is absolutely in control, but humans still need to act and do things. Now, divine sovereignty doesn't have to be at odds with human responsibility. 
We see that in this passage. But look, J.I. Packer writes this. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends, and they work together. So through this passage, we see Paul resting in the promises of God, not his own ingenuity for this hope, but he is practical, too. He says, but we must run aground on some island. So let's read on. Verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that we were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. Fathom is about six feet. And so they were sounding, figuring out, you know, where are we? What are we going to hit? 29. And fearing that we might run on the rocks... They let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Again, you can still hear the desperation in this passage. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So we see some sneaky guys here that want to get off the boat. They're saying, this is bad news. Hey, maybe if we're getting close to land, let's lower that lifeboat back in. We'll uh, volunteer to go take the anchors out with the lifeboat and lower them. But man, we're out of here. Paul knows what's going on. And so uh, Paul said to the centurion, verse 31, uh, and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. He says, we need all hands on deck. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So they listen to Paul. Paul makes a call, says, these guys are trying to leave. Don't let them leave. Uh, arguably an overreaction, if, uh, if you ask me. I mean, they could have just said no. Uh, but they cut the ropes, remove all the temptation, boat floats away. I feel like I, I imagine those sailors that wanted to bail. I'm like, Carl, man, why'd you tell Paul we were going to do this? Now, now no one has a lifeboat. But, alas, that's the way it goes. Now, I wonder if Paul thought that. Oh, man, you kind of overreacted. But, hey, speculation. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in that ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Again, I think Paul is being practical here. These guys have been through a lot. They haven't been eating, whether that's because of rationing or if any of you have been through a time in your life where, uh, you know, it's a life or death situation, you're not necessarily hungry in the moment. And they've been through this for 14 days. And so either way, they're weak. And so Paul says, eat. But knowing Paul, he doesn't waste an opportunity here. He points, uh, well, at this point, he's become the, the quasi-leader of the group, it seems. And so he tells them to eat. But he reminds them that they will be safe because of God's promises. He thanks God, and they eat, and they are encouraged. Paul never wastes an opportunity to share the hope that he has. But it looks different than other times. Right? They're still in this storm. I imagine uh, the, the clouds haven't parted at this point, but Paul 
talks about the promises of God, and he gives thanks to God. He doesn't launch into his typical evangelistic speech, but he undeniably points people around him through his actions and his words that God is faithful through every storm. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. And he bent her fans here. They were going ramming speed to the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. So just like we've seen before, the the soldiers are liable. If their prisoners escape, they could be punished uh, to the same degree that the prisoners could be punished. And so that could even be death. And so the the trigger-happy soldiers who cut away the lifeboat were ready to kill the prisoners. But we see, but the centurion, verse 43, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. So he saves Paul's life. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship so that it was so it was that all were brought safely to land. I love that. Can you swim? Get in the water. Get to shore. No? Here's a plank. Get to shore. After we were brought safely through, uh, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us because it had begun to rain and was cold. Nothing like a warm fire after being at sea for 14 days. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Man, Paul cannot catch a break. The dude is in sea for 14 days. They shipwreck. He, he leads them through. He tells them to eat. They get to shore. The guy's gathering sticks, and he gets bit by a snake. But we'll see that God is faithful through every storm, and God is faithful through every attack. When the native people saw this creature hanging from his hand, it's like Paul's just holding this snake up. When the native people saw the creature hanging from this hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They're saying... Man, this is karma, right? The, this, the goddess justice personified here will not allow him to live. It must be because he's a murderer. Verse 5. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Man, that's such a Paul move. Like, oh, man, I got bit into the fire. They, the natives, were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Is he going to drop? Is he swelling up? No? Well, okay, I guess he's not a murderer. He must be a god. It's pretty fickle thinking. But can you blame them? They really, they're not anchored in anything. They're putting their hope in what they see. They're not anchored in anything else. And how true is that of us in our culture today, too? It's so easy to take a piece of information and jump to a conclusion. So consider even, just as a direct application of our life right now, consider this whole COVID conversation. No matter where you land, and I know you're thinking, Aaron, don't go there. I'm going there. No matter where you land, take a moment to consider 
how easy it is for you, not the other side, how easy it is for you to slip into this. You take a piece of information and you jump to conclusions. We've been called to more than this. Let us not be so fickle. Let us be anchored in God's word and the hope of the gospel and not fall into such a trap of, he's a murderer, he's a God. Let's be anchored somewhere. Verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to a chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people from the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put us on board with whatever we needed. I feel like this is a good, again, kind of an anecdotal moment here, but Paul wasn't afraid to interact with non-Christians. We see, like Julius treats Paul with care and respect, he eventually listens to him, he saves his life. Paul wasn't afraid to interact with non-Christians, and neither should we. We see that God works powerfully through Paul to minister to these people through miraculous events. But we see that this isn't the Paul show. I think it's an important detail. Paul prays, showing that this power is, in fact, from the Holy Spirit and not from him. After three months, so they went to the, now this was supposed to be a five-week trip, but after three months, we set sail in a ship, ship number three, that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puitoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there when they heard about us, came as far from the Forum of Appius and Three Taverns, sounds like a pub, to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So Paul makes it to Rome. This has been a long time coming. But God has been faithful to his promises It was two and a half years earlier that he first promised to Paul that he would be getting to Rome. And it's easy to think in that moment that, you know, Paul would get on this beeline, smooth sailing trip to get to Rome right away. And so it's easy for us to think that when God makes a promise, it will happen exactly the way we expect. But how wrong we are. Paul gives us a helpful picture of what it means to rest in the providence. God's sovereignty in action, rest in the providence of God. Paul waits for years to get to Rome. He wrote the letter to the Romans years earlier, saying, I'm eager to be with you. And here we see this beautiful time where they finally meet. And look at this trip. It's supposed to be five weeks. ends up being four months. Now, I don't know about you. I get impatient when I have to wait hours, let alone months or years. But God is faithful, and he is at work. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to all this? Well, we can see through this passage that the response to God's faithfulness, the 
fact that God is faithful is that we can take courage. So take courage. First of all, as a recipient of God's grace. Paul took courage in this hope that he had. He said, he who promised is faithful. If God said that he would make it to Rome, he would make it to Rome. We will never have time to plumb the depths of the implications of this. You may be listening to this. You may know the gospel, but you also know the state of your heart. You may think, how could God love me? I'm beyond saving. You're not beyond saving. He who promised is faithful. And when he says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he means it. You may be feeling stuck. You may be thinking, I don't know where God wants to send me next. Man, I'm right there with you. But God, the God who promised is faithful. God is working together for your good and his glory. Seek first his kingdom and everything you need will be given to you. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Think of many examples through the Old Testament. Look at Abraham, waited a lifetime for God's promise of a son. Think of Joseph and what God brought him through to get him where he needed to go. Think of Moses, often a short timeline in the kids' Bibles, but he waited years before he was called by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. These are just a few examples of how God can work powerfully through very imperfect people on timelines that we would never expect. And so take courage as a recipient of God's grace and take that and also be an agent of God's grace to others. So take courage as an agent of God's grace to others. I'd encourage you, read through this passage again this afternoon and look for all the times that Paul, a recipient of God's grace, was an agent of God's grace to others. To get you started, look at how many times he told others not to be afraid and to take courage. Consider the confidence he had that God, you know, enabled him to be confident and to have this calm leadership. Consider even the smallest things, like the servant leadership of it not being below him to go and gather firewood. Right? Or consider the really significant, big things, like being an agent of God's power and grace in healing many. So Christian, don't let the fact that you are a recipient of God's grace be kept to yourself. Be an agent of God's grace as you show and share the love of Jesus to others this week. But don't forget in that effort that God is the ultimate deliverer. We see in this passage alone that God makes promises and God keeps promises. His power is clear in delivering Paul and his fellow passengers. He delivers Paul from the snake bite. He delivers many others from diseases. God is trustworthy. God is good. God is faithful. But again, this doesn't mean that it's going to be all smooth sailing, literally or figuratively. God is sovereign and acts out his will according through his divine providence. But his ways are higher than our ways. Did his deliverance mean that Paul and his companions would just take the first boat of perfect weather to Rome two and a half years earlier? No. Far from it. But in hindsight, we see that through these trials, it actually is more confirmation of God's deliverance and his faithfulness and not mere coincidence. 
Paul gets this, and he boasts in the fact that God's power is made perfect in his weakness. This gives Paul an unshakable hope, and this is observable to those that are watching Paul. He's an agent of God's grace to others. Robert Louis Stevenson was a 19th century Scottish novelist, and he was credited with telling the story, which I'll paraphrase here, of a storm-tossed boat. He says, as the conditions worsened, the captain ordered the passengers to get below deck. But it seemed to get worse and worse from the perspective of the passengers below deck. One of these passengers, whether appointed or by volunteering, decided that he should go check on how things were going, as they were all terrified, fearing that these moments could be their last. And so, through unsteady footing and through the wind and the rain, he made his way up inch by inch above the deck. It was a painfully long few minutes, but after a few minutes he returned drenched in rain, looking like he went through quite the trial in those few minutes. But as he descended the stairs, he looked at the terrified passengers that were huddled together below deck, and he said, Fear not, I have seen the face of the captain. And he smiled. All is well. So those who were with Paul, they looked to him. And Paul said, Take heart, fear not. His fellow passengers could say, All is well. But how could Paul say this? Paul is certainly not sovereign. How could they say this? Well, Paul looked to his sovereign God as his captain, and he could take heart knowing that God would get him where he needed to go, and he would work things together for his good. He could look to his God and report back, I know my God, he has never failed me, he is faithful, fear not, all is well. And we can say the same thing this morning. We worship a God who is faithful. We can take courage. We serve and worship a God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever through the easy and the difficult times. And if, if you don't feel this or don't know this to be true, you need to ask, do I know God? Do I belong to God? Look to Jesus, God's only son, who amazingly God in his mercy sent into the world to save sinners like you and I. Jesus came to live a life that you and I couldn't live, a perfect life without any trace of sin, and die the death that you and I deserved for our rebellion against God. In exchange for bearing the weight of our sin, he credits us his righteousness, and it's by grace alone that we are saved. Jesus rose from the dead. He demonstrated that God's wrath had been satisfied. And it's that sacrifice that is the only way, the only way that we can be made right with God. And so by repenting of that rebellion, that sin against God, and believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you too can have an unshakable hope like Paul. Now, this is not a guarantee of smooth sailing on the way to your destination. Far from it, really. But the storms and attacks will come. And so when the storms and attacks come, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And this can be true for you. 
And if you are in Christ, this is true for you. Let this peace be evident in your life and let this peace be observable in your life. And let that peace wash over you that when the storm comes or the storm that you're in right now, you can say, I have looked to Jesus. He cares for me deeply and he is smiling. Fear not, all is well. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can, we can say all is well. Not because of anything we do, but, but because of Christ in us. We thank you for the gift of your son. God, I pray that if there's anyone that does not know that hope, that you would work in their heart to dig deeper. God, only you can be our hope. And so, God, we look to you. Forgive us for the times when we try to steer our own ship and are tossed by every wind and wave. But, God, we need to be anchored in you. And so, God, you are faithful. You are faithful through every storm, through every attack. God, help us to take courage as both recipients of your amazing grace and agents of your grace to others. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.